Hi, I'm Andalisi. Welcome to episode 16 of Essential Conversations. You're about to hear part two of my conversation with NPR political correspondent Don Gagne, which was recorded in September of 2019 at the Detroit Historical Museum, in which we talk about the 2008 election, traveling with President Obama, and the Czechoslovakian bluegrass band that blew him away. I wanted to talk to you about, uh, I don't want to talk about politics necessarily, but I want to talk about your role as a as a journalist and a reporter in this political climate. Mm-hmm. So we never lived in a time where reporters would be called out as fake news at a rally where yeah. everybody was looking at them like they were the enemy for all intents and purposes. How do you work under those circumstances now? How do your, your colleagues work under those circumstances? So it's, uh, it's, it's, it's challenging, and you're always aware of it. Um, the, the quick answer to that, you know, for me and for my news organization, is we just do what we do and what we've always done. I have no interest in making up facts about things I cover. You know, if it, does, if it didn't happen, if I can't verify it, it's not in my story. It's just not. It's not even an issue. You know, so uh, the notion that, that we would fabricate a story is just unthinkable. You know, so so there's that. Then the other thing about uh, you know we're always accused of having biases. It's not that we don't have opinions about things, right? I mean, we're we're thinking people who are processing facts, and you come up with opinions, you come up with thoughts, but. My philosophy is what my opinion is, and you know, and we all know what opinions are. What my opinion is on any given topic, I, I have no right to impose that on you as a listener. It can't color my interpretation of these facts. Uh, the facts have to determine my interpretation of, of, of the facts. And if I feel like I need to give my opinion, then I need to find another news organization to work for and another job to do it. And it's like, okay, I'll go be a commentator, or I'll go be this or that. So, so I'm a straight news reporter, and that comes, brings with it certain responsibilities that we take very seriously. But to your, to your point, uh, it is something to be on the riser at a press event, where the, the nominee and later the President of the United States is pointing at us in the press area uh, it's, you know, it's affectionately referred to as the press pen because uh, <laughs> it's got kind of railings around it. And saying so many lies, so dishonest, so, you know, so despicable. You kinda, I've heard all of that stuff and see a crowd that's just eating it up. And the crowd, which is all around us in, a, in an arena, is no longer facing the stage. They're all facing us in the middle of this press pen with this railing around it. And some of them are very, very, very vehement. It's not that you're afraid, because it all feels like theater a little bit. Now, you don't know that for sure. You're very aware that this is a situation that could be unpredictable at any moment. And you just have to kind of like go about your business accordingly and knowing that and kind of be aware of your surroundings at every time while also listening to the speech and this and that. Now, I, I, I think it's worth saying that I have had hours and hours and hours and hours of great and long conversations with Trump supporters. And often what I do is I go to the rally, 
people start lining up at these rallies, and it was the same for Obama rallies too, but people start lining up for these rallies, you know, six, seven, eight, 10, 12 hours in advance. And as a reporter who spends a lot of time talking to voters, like the hardest thing to do is find people who are willing to stop what they're doing, take five minutes out of their day, and talk to somebody who's approached them with a the microphone when, you know, when they woke up that morning, they didn't think somebody was gonna walk up to them with a the microphone and start asking them questions about the president or about immigration or about, you know, Ukraine or, or, or whatever. So the hardest thing we do is to get, just get regular folks to talk to us. So you're always looking for ways that increase your odds, right? And if you've got hundreds and hundreds of people lined up for like 10 hours before a rally, those people got nothing to do but talk to me. <laughs> so I'll walk up to them and like I'll go to the front, I'll go to the front of the row and I'll be clearly identified as a reporter and I got my microphone and I got my gear and I go, you know, how long you guys been here? And they'll say, since 3 a.m. And I'm like, are you kidding me, I say? You know, and, they, and they're like, yeah, 3 a.m. I go, I gotta talk to you guys about that, right? And they're like, thrilled to talk about that. And I start talking to them, and guess what? Now we're having a conversation. And the conversation goes all kinds of places. And sometimes I've stood there and talked to folks for an hour and had great, great, great conversations. And then sometimes they even hug you when you say goodbye, you know? And then, you know, but, but I've also had moments where the same people I've had those nice long conversations with outside, after the rally, after the president has kind of hurled all of his invectives at us, I'll walk up to him and I'll say, hey, how you doing? Can we talk? What'd you think, you know? And they won't want to talk to me now because it's, it's, it's been kind of reinforced that I'm a bad guy. And you're kind of like, hey, wait, remember me? We had that thing, <laughs> you know. We were so, you know, so so I've so I've had that happen too. So it's you know, I mean, some of it's just kind of the power of whipping up, you know, a big crowd and and getting them getting them fired up, and and you need to do that to get people energized to make sure they vote for you. But it can also have these other mm -hmm. consequences that you just have to be careful. Yeah. You traveled with President Obama mm -hmm. the entire time, right? Yeah, yeah. I basically got on his plane the night of the Iowa caucuses in January of 2008 and got off his plane election night. I mean, I had like weekends off and stuff, you know, yeah. but, but I was, yeah, I was with him all year. So we were talking earlier about the fact that election cycles start so early. When you were covering uh, his campaign, did you think he would become the nominee? Early on, before the Iowa caucuses, it felt like he's this rising star in American politics, not just within the Democratic Party, but in American politics. Right. But he was also running for president after just, you know, he hadn't even been in the Senate two years, I don't think, by the time he declared. Mm -hmm. And the actual presidential election was like, you know, two years into his first term as president. Somebody correct me if I'm wrong on that. It's like it all gets jumbled. But, um, but it was really, it was, or it was his first term and early in his first term. The sense was that uh, we'll see what kind of showing he makes. Hillary Clinton is clearly the front runner. She's been in the Senate a while and she's got the money and she's got a lot of endorsements and everything else. So it kind of felt like uh, maybe this will be interesting, but this is probably Hillary Clinton's 
year, and then he'll either stay in the Senate, and then he'll get his turn next. I mean, it's, you know, it's not that you're, you're not going on the air with that. You're just kind of, that's kind of how you're gaming it out in your mm -hmm. head and in conversations. And it's based on, you know, conventional wisdom and polling and things like that. Uh, and then the Iowa caucuses roll around, and he won. He won the Iowa caucuses, and this is an African-American candidate in one of the whitest, least diverse states in the country. And when I watched him give his speech at the, at the convention center in Des Moines that night, it was the first time the thought even occurred to me that he could be the next president of the United States. It was the first time. Uh, and then, of course, because he won the Iowa caucuses, there's all this buzz, like, oh, Obama's gonna be the nominee. Whoa, can you believe it? It's like he won the nomination that night in Iowa. We went to New Hampshire, which was four or five days later that year in 2008, and all the polls had him ahead, mm -hmm. and he lost. And then suddenly it was off to the races, and it was a real slog with Clinton, with the, you know, the race for superdelegates and regular delegates, so. I would like you to share a story that you told me uh, last night about going to Berlin. Yeah. He was so, not the president yet. That's right. So it was, uh, it was in the summer of 2008, and Obama was doing something unheard of for a presidential candidate during a general election campaign. And he, he was going to go overseas. We made a stop in the Middle East first. We went to Jordan and to Tel Aviv. Then we went, I think, to London. And then he went to Berlin, and Berlin was the big event of the trip. He gave an outdoor speech outside, uh, right in front of the Victory Tower in the park in Berlin. If you've seen that movie, Wings of Desire, that tower with the angels on top of it, that's the tower we gave his speech. It's this iconic place in the center of this really kind of remarkable, historic mm -hmm. city. And there was a crowd of 250,000 people there. And um, so how do you cover that? So what happens to the press corps when there is an event of that magnitude where you guys have to have access to cover the story? Yeah. You have to be protected. Mm -hmm. Where, how it does all that orchestrated so that you can see him, hear him, tell the story, be protected, follow, have enough to be able to write the story you want to write? Yeah. So think of him as being like in the end zone of a football field, right? Except a football field that's about 10 times bigger than a football field. And, and also, this, this metaphor is not great, but take the stands away too. But just kind of like picture that, <laughs> picture that size-wise, okay? And it's jam-packed full. And at the far end of it is, just for color here, the Brandenburg Gate, <laughs> you know? So, and it's full, full, full of people. So the press area was near the front, near the stage. Where he was. Where he was, but off to the side, kind of caged. You know, there was like chain link fence, you know, kind of separating us from the crowd. So it was, it, we couldn't like get into the crowd to wander, but we were right up against the crowd. So if somebody was against the fence, and they all spoke English. And you could interview people through the fence. But you'd, you would see, this was after like eight years, especially since the start of the Iraq war, every time I'd been to Europe with the president, it was Bush. And every time we went, the Europeans came out like crazy to protest him and to, you know, to march and to try to disrupt the trip. And we were in Gothenburg, Sweden once, and Bush's hotel looked down on the main park in front of the train station 
Thousands and thousands and thousands of Swedes gathered in that park underneath his room and turned around and mooned him, you know? <laughs> so, so, so I was there for that, <laughs> you know? So that's, that's, what I'm, that, that's what I'm used to when an American president goes to Europe, right? So, 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 <laughs> full moon in Gothenburg tonight, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and <laughs> avert your eyes, <laughs> cover the story, <laughs> just the facts, <laughs> you know, anyway, um, so, so, so now we're in, now we're in uh, Berlin, which should not be a particularly friendly place for an American politician. And it's 250,000 people, you know, all Europeans, you know, most of them German, but they came from all over the continent because it was their one chance to see Obama. And they're all waving American flags. And they're singing God Bless America. You know, and it's, it, I mean, it was, it was surreal. It was just, it was a crazy thing to witness. But, and then your job is to just capture it and talk about what, you, you saw, so the speech was, you know, the speech was important. It was, you know, it was a message to Europe uh, and it was a conciliatory speech, reaching a hand out to Europe after, you know, kind of all the controversy of mm -hmm. Bush convincing, you know, the European allies to sign on to the invasion of Iraq and all that kind of stuff. Right. But it was, it was something that I don't think I'll ever witness again as a reporter. It was a, quite a thing to see. Don and I obviously both love music and he told this story last night that is really something about a band. Um, and I want you to retell that story. Um, I forgot who you were covering. You no, were, this was Obama. This was Obama the, again. You mean in Prague, that yeah, story? Yeah, yeah, that story. This is good. So, so Obama gets elected, obviously. You guys may have heard that news. Um, and uh, in, in June of 2009, he made his first big trip to Europe. And I was covering it for NPR, and I was in the tight press pool because it just there's a rotation that determines who's in the pool, and it was my turn, it was NPR's turn, and I was in that seat. Uh, so I was on Air Force One heading over there, and I was in the motorcade with him as he was, you know, zipping around Prague. And Prague was one of three or four countries we went to, uh, and it was the place where he was going to give his main big outdoor speech. So it was a big outdoor speech like the one in Berlin that he'd given when he, when he was a candidate, but this time he's president. And it's, it's, it's smaller. It's, there's probably 30,000 people there. And it's, if anybody's been to Prague, it was way up on the hill where Prague Castle is. And there's this beautiful lawn that spreads out and park that spreads out in front of Prague Castle. So the deal is the motorcade drives up there and the, the crowd's already in place by the time the president and the press arrive. And the rest of the press corps, those who aren't in the pool, are already in place. But uh, the motorcade stops, and then they take Obama to a holding room until he speaks in about 15 or 20 minutes. And they had to get the rest of us in the press corps to that press pen. They had him for him, too. That press pen, uh, in, in like set up in the middle of the crowd. So they brought us in from behind the stage. They snaked us around to the front of the stage. And then we were going to turn right and go between these two little narrow ropes that they'd set up, separating the crowd like the Red Sea, right? And we were going to like wind through that and join the rest of our colleagues and the rest of the press corps. So that's, that's, the, that's the route. You know, picture it on Google Maps, you know, except, it, <laughs> except Google Maps won't get you there. And, and you've always got your gear out ready to go because you'd never know when something's going to happen that you need to start recording instantly. As they're walking us, leading us in front of the stage, it's a high stage, about six foot tall, I hear this music in my head. 
And it sounds to me like mandolins and banjos. And it sounds like really American, right? And I kind of like look up at the stage and I see these guys, sure enough, there's a guy who looks just like Jerry Garcia with a big you know, gray beard and he's playing a little mandolin and he's singing in Czech. And there's another guy playing stand-up bass. How do you do that? You know? and, uh, and, and a guitar player. And, and, and they are playing like classic American bluegrass. And I love American bluegrass music. And these guys were as good as, I mean, I've seen Bill Monroe, you know? I mean, they were, they were really, really good. And then they, and I'm, I'm kind of distracted by it, but I'm also trying to not get lost as I find my way back to the press pen. And then they start singing, right? And they're singing in Czech. And as we're winding our way between the ropes, I'm going like, I know that song. What is that song? And I'm like trying, you know, you get, a, you get an earworm, right? And you're going, what is it? What is it? It's driving me crazy. And by the time we get to the press pen, it hits me. They are singing Bob Dylan's Girl from the North Country, <laughs> which I'm a little bit of a Bob Dylan obsessive. Some people may know that. Um, and I'm like, wow. And suddenly I don't care about the speech. <laughs> <You know? laughs> I might as well be like at the ark or at the magic bag or something, you know, listen to these guys play. And, um, and now I'm like, it's like, I'm like, I'm looking around at my colleagues in the White House press corps and like nobody else is noticing this because, you know, I, I, I bring, I bring certain interests to my job as a White House correspondent that not everybody brings with them. Right. And, and now I'm like, where's, where's the audio feed? Where's the malt box? We call it. Where's the feed? Where's the, feed? and I plug into it and I'm going, God, I hope they're feeding this so I can record it, you know, and I plug it in and I got my headphones on and sure enough, there it is. There it is. It's coming through. And, um, and now I'm just like, I'm, I'm delirious. This music is so good. And it's been a long trip and I haven't gotten enough sleep. I can be clear on both of those things too. And then, so the song ends and I was going, wow, that was great. They start another one and it's another Dylan song. And it's, you know, I'll go through the catalog here for you. It's, they're doing Nashville Skyline Rag. You know? And I'm going, wow. They, you know, and then they, they do that and I'm, I'm rolling on it again. And then they, the song ends and they do another one. And this time they do this like really obscure song from some Dylan album, uh, the Street Legal record, if you know that record. And, uh, and I'm singing along. <laughs> you're, let's let's be clear. You're the only one. I'm I'm the only one. I'm the, I'm the only one. And it's all in check. It's all in check. But my my brain is doing the translations because I know the entire Dylan songbook in my head, right? Um, so so anyway, then they then they finally they did another one. They did a fourth one, right? And then Obama comes out and he gives a speech. And okay, and now I'm a deadline and I report on the speech and I filed my story and I jump in the motorcade and we get on the plane and we go to the next stop. And the next stop is Istanbul, which is our very last stop on this trip before we head home. And I'm having this little conversation with my editor, kind of the wind down, the trip is over, let's just kind of do a debrief before you get on the plane to come home. And my editor says, she says, well, we'd probably like one more story from you, maybe when you get back. What's like the most interesting thing that happened on the whole trip? <laughs> I said, you want to know the most interesting thing? And she's, yeah. I said, I just heard this, this Czech bluegrass band playing Dylan tunes, and I recorded all of it. And she kind of like, she knows me well enough, and she said, uh. <laughs> and she said, okay, she said, I'll tell you what, you got an eight-hour flight home, write something on the flight, and we'll hear it when you land. And... So then two days later, and you can go online and you can Google Gagne, Dylan, and Prague. And that story will be the, I, I guarantee you, it'll be the only thing that comes up. 
and you can find it. But it, but it, aired, on, it aired on NPR that weekend, and it's one of my favorite stories ever. But here's the deal. I had no idea who this band was. They were just like the warm-up act for Dylan, or for Dylan, for Dylan, for Obama playing great, great bluegrass music. And so I, I, I said in my story, I have no idea who they were, but man, were they great. And then NPR listeners being NPR listeners uh, start blasting me with emails and blasting the show with emails. How can Don Gagne not know the great Czech bluegrass band Drew Trava? That's their name, Drew Trava. And it was more than it was more than one. And they were like so offended that I didn't name the band, that I didn't know the band. It'd be like you playing the Grateful Dead and saying, I don't know who these guys are, but man, they got a groove going, you know? <laughs> So the next week, so I did another story about him, like playing some of the music again and then reading some of those listener emails. That and, is so priceless. But, but Google Gagne Prague Dylan and you can hear that piece. So, okay. okay, there's one final thing I want to ask you about. And I think there might be a little mystique or curiosity about the White House Correspondents Dinner. I think I've been to 17 of them. I don't go anymore. I'm kind of relieved I don't go anymore, but I don't go anymore. Yeah. Is it fun or is it just you know, something you have to do and... It's something you have to do, which is not to say it's not fun, but you know, it's, I mean, you've heard the nickname for it, right? It's called the press prom. And it is like the prom, and it includes all of the drama that prom night has, except we're not 17 anymore, you know? And everybody's like trying to get like the best date, and the date is like, oh, NBC's got the cast of West Wing this week, you know? And so, so all these people are kind of in the same room, but it always, it always happens on like the first nice summer day in May, <laughs> and it's always on Saturday night, and you have to put a tuxedo on. And this, is, this sounds really lame that I'm grumbling about this, right? I mean, it's, but then, but then, and so I'd always like, oh, this isn't why, I, you know? <laughs> I apologize. I should just stop. But, but then, no, but then you get there and it's fun, you know? And, you know, there was one year I was there and I look over and there's a guy standing there who looks much better in his tuxedo than I do. Um, and I'm going, God, he looks familiar. Who is that? And then it hit me. It was Curtis Granderson. He was playing for the Mets and the Mets were in town that weekend and they had a day game and somebody invited him. I wish I'd have thought of it. I'd have invited him, right? <laughs> so I walk up to him like a geeky 17-year-old kid at prom who just stumbled upon Curtis Granderson. Hi, Mr. Granderson. Can I take a picture with you? So now I have a picture of me and Curtis standing there in our tuxedos like we're cool. buddies. You know? um, quickly, who was, who was the best, uh, who delivered the best speeches president-wise at the... Uh, so, you know, Obama was really good. Obama could make a living as a stand-up comic if he wanted to. He was like as funny as Chris Rock. And, and they would hire writers from The Daily Show and all that, and, and he could deliver the lines. Uh, Bush was often very funny. There was one year where Bush, where they hired a Bush impersonator. Bush did a line, and then the impersonator did what Bush was thinking, <laughs> right? And that was wickedly funny. But I think the funniest one ever was Bush got up there and he started his speech. And about, you know, 30 seconds and probably two lame jokes into it, Laura Bush, who's seated right there next to him, stands up, pushes him aside and says, George, let me take over. And she had this routine written that was kind of all about her and Lynn Cheney alone at the White House, you know, and she'd say, talk about your desperate housewives, you know, and, like and she was just, she was Great. really fall down funny. 
Coming up next, Don Gagne talks about being at the White House on 9-11 and the conversation he had with his wife that day, the relationship between President Bush and Vice President Dick Cheney, and the challenges of getting to the truth. WDET celebrates 75 years of public radio with gratitude to our dedicated listeners. Listeners like you cherish community voices, local music, and independent journalism. This spring fundraiser, we're counting on your support, just as you count on us. Invest in WDET's next chapter at WDET.org or tap Donate in the mobile app. I'm Andalisi, and here's a conclusion of my conversation with NPR political correspondent Don Gagne. I'm hoping you'll talk about 9-11, where you were, and what was going on. So, yeah, the question was 9-11. Remember how I said we all thought that 2000 election recount was going to be the biggest story any of us would ever cover? You know, nine, ten months later comes 9-11. And I was not traveling with Bush that day. He was in Florida. Um, a lot of, I, these details are obviously well known, so I'll kind of skim skim through some of them. He was in Florida, but uh, so I, I, I was uh, heading to the White House, but because Bush wasn't there, and because the press secretary wasn't there, the press secretary was with Bush, I didn't need to get there for an early morning, the gaggle we talked about, right? So I took that opportunity to walk our two kids to school, just, you know, D.C. public schools, a few blocks from our house, and so I, so I dropped them both off at school. They were what, uh, pre-K and probably second grade, second grade then. And we'd only been in Washington, you know, eight months by then. And I'm waiting for the bus because I wasn't in any hurry. I'm waiting for the bus to take me to the Metro, to take me to the White House. And my phone rings and it's my editor, Ron Elving, uh, who's one of the world's great, great, decent human beings, if you didn't already know that from listening to him on the air. But he says to me, he says, listen, he said, uh, he says, I don't know if you heard, but a plane just crashed into the World Trade Center. And he said, it looks like it's a small plane, but when you get to the White House, it's probably worth seeing if they have anything to say about it. And, you know, there was no alarm. There was just like this, this kind of crazy thing happened in New York, and it, it's the kind of thing that you, you want the president to weigh in on everything. You just do. And it felt like the thing, right? So while I'm on the phone with him, the second plane hits the tower, and then obviously we knew what you know what you guys all knew in that in that instant. I still headed to the White House, but I kind of like ran to Connecticut Avenue, jumped in a cab, and you know I, I get there, and and as I'm going through the White House gates, you know the those those pol- Secret Service uniform guys I was talking about, you know, and um, as I'm going through the gates. Somebody on the other side of the gates, who's is probably another you know reporter doing a TV stand up there or something. I hear them yell, "The Pentagon has been hit," and that's the point when it wasn't just a terrorist attack and a terrorist attack in New York. It was an attack on the nation's capital and on the United States of America, on the Pentagon, on our military. And we didn't know how many planes were in the air, and there was every assumption that the White House was a potential target for another plane in that moment. So at that moment, the White House is evacuated. And uh, like, you know, like you know, those Secret Service guys I talk tigers with every morning, suddenly they've got like automatic weapons out, and they're like ordering us 
uh, off the grounds, out into Pennsylvania Avenue. I see, you know, young women who work at the White House, uh, you know, in the West Wing, running up the driveway, holding their high heels in their hands so they can run, and, you know, people just like sprinting and essentially running for their lives to get out of there as fast as they can. And we're all being pushed back, you know, into Lafayette Park. And you have no idea what's going on. You just, you just have, there's no information to be had. There's no way to figure it out in that instant. All you know is the Pentagon, you can now see the smoke from the Pentagon because it's not that far away. You know what's happened in New York City. But the other, the other thing that happens is you are still a reporter, right? And you're thinking, I got to get on the air. I got to describe what I'm seeing here. Uh, I remember uh, hearing all the sounds swirling around me and kneeling down in the middle of Pennsylvania Avenue, which is closed off to traffic all the time anyway, and getting my gear out so I could start recording some of this sound, you know, as if I was going to like use it four hours later on the air. But it's just like all of that just kicks in. All of the cell lines were jammed up right, overloaded, and I remember just coming back and forth on what was then my, uh, my StarTac flip phone. Remember those? <laughs> that, that was like the latest thing. It was a big deal. And I, I had on speed dial, I had home, I had, I had Lori's number, and I had the morning edition studios, because we were in, obviously, in live coverage. And I was going like back and forth, back and forth, busy signal, busy signal, busy signal, like not able to get a signal, not able to get through. And finally, I got a ring. And I didn't even know which one I'd connected with, right? And then I hear Lori's voice, and she picks up the phone, and she goes, hi, hon, what's up? She had no idea, because she had turned Morning Edition off, and she's not one to turn CNN on and just have it on. And I, you know, we had this conversation that I still almost can't believe we had, but it was like I said, I said, listen, I said, yeah, I, I said turn, turn on the radio, turn on the TV, and I, I probably in five seconds told you what had happened. And then I remember, this I got kind of choked up as I was saying it, because uh, I couldn't believe I was saying it. But I remember saying, you might need to just grab the kids and go. And we might not be able to have a discussion about this, because I have no idea what's happening. You know, and it's, it's not that I was like afraid for my life in that moment. It was just like, we were, I, I, didn't, I didn't know when we would have another conversation. And if she felt she needed to get out of town fast with the kids, mm -hmm. I needed to make sure she knew that I was good with that and that she shouldn't try to reach me and have that slow her down even like a nanosecond. And that's like a crazy conversation to have on a gorgeous, you know, September day, you know. And, th and then I got through to morning edition and I spent like the next four hours just hanging on hold, waiting for him to come to me just to kind of describe what was going on at the White House. The th I'll wrap this up by saying the thing that was so oddly calming was at some point in the first you know, 15 minutes or so after we'd had our conversation and after I got on the air, there were fighter jets flying overhead making that screaming noise that they make and like flying low and like banking over the White House, you know, like that. And normally that should just scare you to, you know, that should not be a comforting thing, except in that moment it was like, okay, those guys got this, so we're at least okay, because that's going on. At one point we heard a bomb went off at the State Department. There was no reason not to believe that in the middle of all of that. So 
anyway, I, I'll, I'll leave it at that, but that was, thank you for that question, but that, yeah, that was, that was a day. That was a day. And, we, and I, th I feel like almost every story I've covered since kind of grows out of that moment. I had two questions. One about the Adam McKay movie, Vice, and Cheney's propensity to be the policymaker. Did you think that was hyperbolic? And the second question I had was about, was the coverage of the Brett Kavanaugh hearings and his nomination fair? Mm -hmm. So uh, the, the, the Cheney question first, I have only seen parts of Vice, um, and it's not that I didn't want to see it, but I started watching it and I fell asleep. <laughs> and you know, there are just too many choices on Netflix, and I haven't, uh, I, I haven't gone back to it, but I do, I do feel like I should. Cheney had a huge role in policy. He was, he was somebody that, at least in the first term, that Bush trusted and listened to, uh, and Bush would push back hard, and others in the administration would push back hard at the notion that Cheney was making the decisions. Cheney was certainly an influential advisor. You know, I, I can't say the degree to which Cheney had an undue amount of power. Uh, ultimately, the vice president has as much power as the president wants them to have. You know, I mean, the president is in charge. And Bush used to get his back up. It's like, you know, are you suggesting I wasn't the president? You know, I mean, so, so he pushes back on it. But, but I, I don't know that I have a better answer to that, except I can tell you there was a real rift between Cheney and Bush in the second term. And, you know, the analysis, and I think it's, I think it's decent analysis, was that uh, Bush, you know, at the very least, uh, was pushing back hard against some of the things that Cheney was advocating. And was it because he was suddenly having second thoughts about some of the advice he took from Cheney in the first term? I can't say. And I don't, I don't feel like Bush has ever given us great insight on that, nor have others, you know, a lot of others in the White House. But we do know that Cheney was kind of frozen out in the second term, and that as the presidency came to an end, their relationship was not great at all. And the Scooter Libby thing. And yeah, so Scooter Libby was Cheney's- He wouldn't pardon him. Chief advisor, and that's right, that's right. Cianne's helping me remember. Cheney was really mad that Bush would not pardon, pardon Scooter Libby. Bush did commute Scooter Libby's sentence, so he- you Kept know, him out of jail. Got him out of jail, yeah. he got him out of jail. But, he, but Bush did not want his legacy to be pardoning somebody who was found guilty, and I forget what the exact charges were. I mean, I think it was perjury, but I'm not mm -hmm. sure what else it was. But he, he, didn't, he didn't want to have the pardoning of Scooter Libby as part of his, his legacy. And Cheney was really upset about that and accused Bush of leaving a soldier on the field, essentially, mm -hmm. was the way. The other question is, I, I don't know that I have good thoughts, I mean, uh, on the Kavanaugh hearing, and I don't know that I want to kind of wade in with an opinion on that, especially since it's still an ongoing story, and to do so might be fraught <laughs> were, were I to do it. And I, and I, uh, but I can also say I don't know off the top of my head, kind of without kind of like reviewing again, what my answer is. I, I don't want to sound like too much of a homer here, but uh, I don't recall kind of in those days having any problems with NPR's coverage and what I heard on NPR. But before I kind of before I gave you any kind of a substantive answer, first, I don't know that I'd offer an opinion, because I shouldn't, 
but also, I, uh, right now, I don't even know what my thoughts are without kind of reviewing what's there. So, that, but thank you for both of those. So it used to be that publications could not write a story without, with unnamed sources unless they had, I don't remember, like maybe two named and one unnamed. And now, like the New York Times and everybody else will write a complete story with unnamed sources. When did that change and why it changed? Is that a good thing? Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, obviously you want to name people as much as possible, right? I mean, always, if you can. But the reality is you can't because people won't tell you some of the things that we've, you know, that we learn uh, unless they can protect themselves. Uh, so the key always for a reporter and for any news organization, and I, you know, I can't speak for the New York Times and the Washington Post, but I can certainly speak to how we do it at NPR, is you, you have to find ways to make sure that you're comfortable that what you're getting is true and accurate and not just the product of somebody like having an ax to grind. Which is not to say having an ax to grind necessarily disqualifies you, right? I mean, sometimes people come forward because they feel like they've been wronged somehow or they're getting a raw deal or whatever. But the key is whatever their motivation is to be able to verify it through multiple sources. Um, Have you ever had a story that you wanted so badly to put out there, but you couldn't get the verification, but you believed it to be true? I, I, I have not. I, I have not. Um, and I'm, you know, I'm not doing a lot of stories where I'm dealing with anonymous sources right. telling me hugely sensitive things. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'll get, I'll, I'll talk to a lot of people who'll say, I'll only give you this off the record or I'll only give it to you on background. Right. And it's often something very interesting and very significant. And maybe it's about campaign strategy or something mm -hmm. like that. But it's also generally the kind of thing that once you know that little bit, it helps you focus your questions elsewhere. Yeah. And then you might get what you need by asking a pointed question to somebody who has already been on the record with you and will say, yeah, that's true. You know, but you still always have to judge their veracity. So in a perfect world, we would have people, you know, returning our calls, uh, going on the record and telling us the truth all the time, you know, and allowing us to put their name in the paper, because it sure would be great if we could say, you know, Defense Secretary Mattis then explained that the, you know, or, or, or whatever it is, but, but it just, it just doesn't work that way. The important thing is that it can't be a crutch that you go to, you know, too, too quickly or too easily. And negotiations, like, need to sort out what level of information you're going to be able to say about whoever mm -hmm. it is who's giving you information. But is there more of it? I don't know. There might be more of it, but I'm not 100% sure. But it's, even if there is more of it now, it, you know, it could just be like a quirk of history or where we are now. But, I, but, I, but either way, I don't feel like it's anything new. And um, I, I don't know that any news organization you know, had kind of the hard and fast, unbreakable rule. But, the, but there are standards that you have to be pretty strict about. And if you're going to violate them, you have to have, uh, violate's not the right word, but you know what I mean. If you're going like, to not adhere to them in that moment, you have to have a really good reason to do it. And that's, that, that's why certainly at NPR, the, the process is that no reporter can make that decision. 
you take it to your editor, and then that editor may decide to take it up another step in the flowchart, and it may go to the highest levels of the news division before a decision is made. Uh, not to mention lawyers getting involved and vetting it and asking you a thousand questions uh, about your reporting to make sure you've buttoned everything down that you can possibly button down. But it seems to me that at least in the past 20 years, the amount of misleading and deceptive information has increased considerably, unless you want to say that, no, it's always been there, it just wasn't reported or whatever. But yeah. I think it has gained more uh, of a voice and a platform for the consumers. If you have any opinion or comment on it, and the second question, second part of my question is, do you think that the media, the mass media of any form, is doing enough to actually counter this, not necessarily a day after with fact-checking, but immediately, because mm -hmm. once the consumer has received the news, a fact-check 24 hours later, or even 12 hours later, is not going to have the same impact. To your second question, I mean, I know we're doing more fact-checking in real time. Uh, if you go to NPR.org uh, on any debate night, for example, there will be a running, uh, you know, like a, like a Reddit page or maybe it's on FaceTime, uh, but uh, you, you can log in and it's easy to find it. And in real time, you'll get reporters who are, uh, you know, the beat reporters on any given topic that's being discussed, fact-checking it. You get some of that on Twitter as well, but it's kind of all comes from the same projects. So we're, we're doing much more of that in real time. And it's for the very reason that you say. I mean, there is, and you know, more of an urgency because the, the news moves so fast and people are consuming it so quickly through so many different ways that to wait four hours means the falsehood has been out there too long. Uh, now, it takes, as you can imagine, tremendous resources to do that. And you can't just, you know, we fact check the president in real time too, but you, you can't just, you know, as he says something, fact check him by saying, you know, I don't think that's accurate. It seems to me that it's something more like this. You gotta, you gotta like have it nailed down yourself if you're gonna fact check it. Otherwise, you're just kind of compounding the problem, right? So that's kind of how hard it is and, and how uh, resource intensive it is. Now, the other, the other thing as to whether or not there's, there's more, is it misinformation you said? Not negative news, just misinformation. 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 I think there's more of it, it's always been there. Yes, it's always been there, right? Watch Citizen Kane any night, right? <laughs> you know, and there, there it is. But there are now channels for that news to reach massive, massive numbers of people instantaneously. There's no way to truly fight that except be a news organization that doesn't do that and does its best to push back against it as you can. But, uh, you know, we can't, we can't stop people from having a Facebook feed that only aggregates, you know, conspiracy theories and stories that, the, that are gonna reinforce their notion of what's accurate. And that suddenly becomes their main source of news. And that's where everything they know comes from. It's like we, I, uh, that, 
that, that's way above my pay grade to even talk about <laughs> how to fix that, right? Uh, I mean, obviously there are discussions with, with the, the big social media platforms, with Google and Facebook and all that, about what their responsibilities are in terms of how their sites are used. But I will say, you do, you do correctly identify a problem. And I encounter people all the time in my interviews who say things that is, that is just wildly inaccurate. I ask where they heard it, or I try to correct them on it, and it suddenly becomes a big kind of discussion or even an argument, and it's not my intent to get into an argument with them. I just don't want to let something that I know is accurate stand while I'm having a discussion with them. But I also only do it if I know it's something that I can uh, refute it kind of quickly and cleanly. You know, if it's like a big complicated thing, it's for my purposes, kind of being out there talking to voters, it's, it's hard to like, you'll get lost in there. You'll get lost in there and then you won't too many stories. So I don't, I don't, I don't know if that's a particularly satisfying <laughs> answer, but it's, uh, it's just some thoughts on that, yeah. My thanks to Don Gagne. The Essential Conversation series is a production of Detroit's public radio station, WDET, and supported by ELS Studio 3D. If you enjoyed it, I hope you'll listen to other episodes in this series. Production provided by Rowan Nemisto and original music by Brett Lucas. I'm Andalisi. Thanks so much for listening. Mm-hmm.